In our text today, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we will pick up where we left off. I, we left off actually at the end of verse 13, but I gave you verses 12 and 13 on your text so that you can get a quick reminder of where we focused the last part, last time we were together, because verses 12 and 13 are a couple of the most famous and most widely used verses in Scripture. The first about hubris in verse 12 to, you know, be careful if you think you've got it all together. And then verse 13 is all about temptation and that temptation will always happen, but God will always provide a way out. Um, And if you recall our, our fun story about the woman with the donuts last week. If you remember, the lady who thought she could resist and then didn't, um, her main problem was she went to the donut shop. She should not have. Because if you have a weakness or you have something that can tempt you very strongly, don't do it. Just stay away from it. You have the choice, especially in this world. There are plenty of other places and the means by which you can escape called your vehicle. You can go somewhere else. You can actually leave it. And so Paul starts our passage for today with the words, therefore. And what's the phrase? If it's a therefore, what is it? Therefore. Therefore, exactly. He's referring to everything he has talked about up to this point. The subject, I'll remind us again, what has been the topic starting in chapter 8. What question is Paul asking or answering? What should we do with meat sacrificed to idols? Can we eat it? Now, I've said it multiple times, and I'm going to say it again. In the 21st century, the idea of having to worry about meat sacrificed to idols, whether it's a problem, you just want to go, why do we even read this? Why are we studying this? The 21st century would never have anything like that. This week, this is a headline in the news. Hindu worshippers behead thousands of buffaloes in the world's largest animal sacrifice. And then there's a photograph of the killing field of all these animals beheaded. And the men and the women around standing in the muck and the blood Quote, Hindu religious worshippers in Nepal have begun slaughtering thousands of buffalo in a major religious ceremony that is alleged to be the world's largest animal sacrifice. The massive animal slaughter is believed by some Hindus to bring good luck. Notice they don't, they don't slaughter cows because cows can be the reincarnation of a predecessor, but buffaloes are fine. The massive animal slaughter is believed by some Hindus to bring good luck. Religious devotees also believe the sacrifice is pleasing to Gadhimai, G-A-D-H-I-M-A-I, who Hindus believe to be the goddess of power. Of course, the reason it hit the news is that the animal rights activists are upset. But no Christian has said a word about it. Isn't that interesting? Well, we wouldn't know about it, right? Unless it was in the news. You think about the missionaries in Nepal. 
they have to deal with meat, sacrifice to idols, don't they? 21st century, this headline is December 3rd. You think, uh, it never happened, not a big deal. Why are we getting all upset about it? Well, it's right here in front of us. It just doesn't seem to have happened next door. But it may, it may be happening next door, you just don't know it. So what does Paul say? Therefore, my beloved, you have to stop there. He calls them my beloved. These are his critics. <laughs> these aren't, these haven't, you know, they're, they're, yeah, they're his church. He, he, he loves them. But you have to realize that there's some people in this group that haven't been exactly the most welcoming and friendly. And yet, Paul doesn't blithely say anything. Let's just put it that way. Everything in the text, Paul has there for a reason. He doesn't say, well, my friends. And then he says it. He actually means it. But then his next phrase, flee from idolatry. Huh. Meat sacrifice to idols, you know. Um, take heed lest you might fall. Uh, you've got passages on... Paul surrendering his rights about food offered to idols. And then he has this interesting parallel between idolatry and sexual immorality that seems to be inextricably intertwined because of what was happening in the Corinthian church. Some came out of a very pagan background and some feel like, well, now that I'm Christian, I can do whatever I want and actually I can go back to those old, comfortable worship things I did before, going up to the temple of Aphrodite. And I can do this, and I can do that without, without, any, without any possibility of it being wrong. So Paul says, flee from idolatry. In 1 Corinthians 6.18, he says, flee sexual immorality. In 1 Timothy 6.11, Paul writes, in regard to greed, to flee these things. In 2 Timothy 2.22, Paul writes that Timothy needs to flee the youthful lusts. So flee to where? You can run away, but where are you going to run to? Let's just take modern day and United States of America in our culture. Flee idolatry. Good luck. It's everywhere. You can't seem to turn one way without being confronted with another thing. So some would say, well, we need to flee from the world completely. Just don't interact with the world at all. Get into a... <clears throat> Some would call it, and this is not going to be a friendly phrase, but they call it the Christian bubble. Get into the Christian bubble where everybody, everything's safe. Huh. Safe. Yeah, our son grew up in Christian schools his whole life, but they're not safe either. It's not safe. I went to a Christian high school. Bunch of we had drug busts every week. <laughs> I mean, you know, so <clears throat> you, you've got, so there's nothing safe because sin is in this world and the prince of darkness rules this world. 
And you can't flee the world because also in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul writes to the uh, believers there and he says, um, he's talking about the sexually immoral of the world, the greedy and the swindlers and the idolaters. Since you need to go out into the world, Otherwise, evangelism doesn't happen. Otherwise, the gospel does not spread. So that's not the option. Well, he's saying flee idolatry, but run to the truth. And in that truth, we are then encouraged, implored to proclaim the truth boldly wherever we are. Now, the word flee, by the way, is a present tense, present imperative. So it's continually. You can add the word continually in one of the word in front of the word flee. Therefore, my beloved, continually flee from idolatry. It's not a one-off. You don't feel really good because Tuesday you fleed immorality. Because Wednesday it's going to be right back. It's going to be right there. <clears throat> now, Begs the other question, so I've identified flee. Now we need to, to identify or define <coughs> idolatry. What is idolatry? What is, what is an idol? Well, could it be something like this, which I pulled out of our garden? Now, it's always buried by the pond next to the turtle. You can never see it because it's always falling over. So this little bird of prey, P-R-A-Y, is our idol of the day. Now I would like you to go over and take some of the goods from the table and I would like you to come and present it to this and pray and bow. Are you going to do that? No. Of course not. It's silly. Or is it? Yeah, this is an easy one. I mean, goodness, he even has one eye closed, so he's looking at you. All the time. In your dreams. So, that's a silly one. We kind of go, ah, we would never do that. Well, how about this idol? This is from Amazon. It's a catalog of goods. You pray to this idol every week when you go shopping. Christmas time is one of the most dangerous times of the year for a Christian when it comes to the idolatry of things. This came in the mail this week and I thought, huh, flee idolatry. Let's not look at it. Let's not worry about it. Well, how about this idol? Well, which denomination shall I pull out? Ooh, how about the big one? The $20 bill. Do we idolize this? Especially when we don't have it. Especially when we don't have it. That's true. It's exactly true. We idolize things. Tim Keller defines idolatry this way. <clears throat> it is anything 
and anything is in italics, anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, and anything you seek to give you only what God can give. It's anything that replaces God. Anything that takes your eye away from God. Idols, especially in Paul's day, (coughs) were grounded. They were visible. And if they weren't visible, they said they were the principalities and powers associated with what they could see. (coughs) Excuse me. The tricky thing about idols, and I'm quoting here, is that they're usually good things. Mm -hmm. Idolatry, though, happens when we turn a good thing into a God thing. One letter. We turn a good thing into a God thing. And that's a bad thing. It's that simple. We can turn something good. There's nothing wrong with merchandise. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with the $20 bill in my wallet. There's nothing wrong with it at all. But when we make it the God, when we make it the focus, when it becomes our dreams, when it becomes our waking dreams, when we just are thinking, oh, if I could only have that, my life would be so much better. And, it, and the word that doesn't have to be material. It can be relational. If I only had that, it dominates. An idol is that thing in your life that you look at and say, if I can only obtain that, then I will be fulfilled. This is a demonic lie because the only way we can try and find true purpose and happiness in life is through a relationship with God. So, to further double down on our definition of idolatry, I printed out from Tori's topical textbook his entry on idolatry. <clears throat> These are all the verses in the scriptures related to idolatry, every last one of them organized by topic. It's an extraordinary document. Um, I think what makes documents like this more incredible to me for someone like R.A. Torrey is he compiled this without a computer. (laughs) He had to know the scriptures so intimately that he could, this is just one entry by the way, Is there another one? We got another one? Good. Looks like we got every family at least has one. Okay. Hey, I'm, you know, I will be grateful to continually print out more copies every week. More of you need to keep coming at the same time. (laughs) Okay, we're good. I mean, this is for your, you know, fun and enjoyment, if you want to call it that, but for your own Bible study. But I do want to turn your eyes to the first page, second column on the right, under the headline, They Who Practice. 
also idolatry. Those who practice idolatry and look at these phrases, they forget God. They go astray from God. They pollute the name of God. They defile the sanctuary of God. They are estranged from God. They forsake God. They hate God. They provoke God. They are vain in their imaginings. They are ignorant and foolish. They inflame themselves. They hold fast to their deceit. They're carried away by it. They go after it in their heart, and they are mad upon it. Right there is a sermon, by the way, on the issue of idolatry and how we practice it. And it goes on in the next page. I just won't continue. You know, when you study something like this as a teacher, um, the biggest challenge is realizing that you're also teaching yourself. And I've had the chance to meditate on the issue of idolatry all week. You're hearing it for the first time right now, and you're trying to absorb what I'm trying to say. But I've heard Alistair Begg, I've heard John MacArthur, I've read oh, probably three or four different uh, major sermons and have read numerous commentaries on this topic. You know, there's a commonality in all of it. Paul said it very simply, flee. Flee idolatry. You identify it in your own life, it could, you know, you, just whatever you want to make of it, whatever you come up with, flee from it. Back in Exodus, which was referred to earlier in chapter 10, you had Moses up on the Mount Sinai getting the first edition of the Ten Commandments, because what we have now is the second edition. We hope they weren't changed, but he came down the mountain. But while he was gone, the people despaired. They said, where is Moses? I mean, these complaining people. And I would say in our own lives, God is silent. He's not speaking to me. He's not saying anything to me. My prayers aren't being answered. So I need to find something else for that answer. And the people rose up. They went to Aaron and said, you need to make us one of the gods that brought us here. Aaron must have been, you know, a couple of bricks shy of a load. Because as the high priest, he goes, okay, bring me your gold and your rings and all this. And after the incident was over, this is fascinating. Let's see if I can find the verse for you. Because <clears throat> I reread the whole passage and it was one of those moments of, seriously, Aaron, that is a really weak excuse. This is chapter 32 of Exodus. And after, you know, Moses has come back down, he's broken the Ten Commandments, he's broken them, and he's <clears throat> he ground up the golden calf they had made into dust, put it in the water supply, and made the people drink it. That's one angry fellow. But if he hadn't, even after he did that, God said, well, I should just start over. I just wipe them out. I'm tired of this. And God says, no, 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 no. So Moses goes to Aaron and says, what in the world happened here? 
And, you know, Aaron recites the story. And then verse 24, he said, let, I said to them, let any of you who had gold take it off. And so they gave it to me and I threw it into a fire and oh, out came this calf. Yeah. Voila. <laughs> oh, it's a miracle. It's like, oh, come on. You had to get artisans. You had to craft the mold. This was so intentional. And you chose a calf, for goodness sake. It's a pagan image of all things. And after it had been raised up, and the people were happy, Aaron said, let us tomorrow have a feast of Yahweh. And he connected the idol to God Almighty. This little idol is meaningless. If you want to call it an idol, it's not. It's just a lawn ornament. But, I mean, we don't bow to it every morning. Lisa didn't even know it existed. Okay, so, you know. It's an idol. Anyway, <laughs> I live with this. <laughs> and I give it right back. Yes, I'm just as bad, yes. <clears throat> so, pick whatever in your life that is at the forefront of your thoughts this week. And go, Am I, what am I doing? Have I thought of God this week? Or do I wait until right before you have to when you're in a small group or your worship service or you're in some, some sort of setting? That's what Paul is talking about. 1 John 5, 19 to 21, in case you think only Paul wrote about idols. John wrote, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's the last verse of 1 John. Little children. Little children. We're acting like children when it comes to these kind of things. And yet, verse, six, verse 15, Paul says, I speak to you as sensible people. Isn't that kind of a contrast? Shouldn't he started with that? No, he started with, flee from idols. I'm speaking to you like sensible people. Judge what I'm saying. Judge for yourself what I'm saying. We know what we're. We know what I'm even reciting here is true. It's just not comfortable truth. It's not easy. But he turns from that to six verses related to the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. Now I gave a little preamble a bit about this last week. Some of you heard it. Some of you missed it. That was more extemporaneous, partly because I knew I'd be teaching on it this week, uh, because last week was a communion Sunday, and so I wanted to have at least an idea. But let's look at 
this section a little more in depth. And before you get afraid, we're going to do a lot of this again, but with a different focus when we get to chapter 11, verses 17 and following. Because chapter 11, 17 and following, really lays out the order and the construct of the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> but most forget that Paul actually wrote about it in chapter 10. So let's just look at it first. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake in the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So let's start back up at the top. Verse 16, he calls it the cup of blessing. Interesting phrase, unless you understand the Passover. In the most strict Passover sections, there are four cups. They drink in order. The third cup is the cup of blessing. That's what he's referring to. And many feel that in the Passover meal, um, that that's when Jesus paused at the cup of blessing and then said, this is my body, etc., etc. But the cup of blessing that we bless, there is a word here that's you see it happen four times in this passage. It's the word participation. Notice verse 16, participation. And again, the other half of verse 16, participation. Verse 18, participants. And verse 20, participants. You should circle that because that is the Greek word koinonia. Isn't that interesting? So, you've heard the word koinonia. We have koinonia fellowships, which, by the way, is an oxymoron because it's, it's redundant. It's the same word. The Greek word koinonia means fellowship in most cases. So, why is it translated as, is it not a fellowship in the blood of Christ? Is it not a fellowship in the body of Christ? Well, you could, but it wouldn't make much sense in English because uh, our understanding of the word is different. The word koinonia is used 19 times in the New Testament. Four of them are right here. Something is going on in Paul's mind through the power of the Spirit in this. Koinonia, fellowship, can also mean partnership. It can mean communion. And in the New American Standard, in the New Living Translation, it is translated as sharing instead of participation. Now think of this about this for a second. Just let's focus on this idea that the, uh, the, the concept of the Lord's Supper, the concept of this, this communion is a participation in something.
Most of the major world religions keep God at a distance. You can't get to him. Well, you can if it's an idol, I suppose, or you can go, but it's all, you know, bowing and scraping and and all of this uh, distance. Or you have to go through the shaman or the priest or the person who is the one who is given the job to make the communion for you. You know some variations of that theme. And yet here, Christ invites to participate in a meal. The weight of that action, especially in this culture, is a big, big deal. It was a special event to be together and share a meal together. That's this participation. Now, you know, I, I debated whether to even get into this, but I decided to go ahead and do it anyway. There are four different theories, theological theories, of what happens during the Lord's Supper to the elements. So you have the Roman Catholic position is transubstantiation. The key word there is trans, to change, to change the substance. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that at communion, once it is blessed, it is transformed into the actual physical blood and body of Christ. You're eating the flesh, you're drinking the blood. And there's volumes about this. Um, by the way, the word Eucharist is not a Catholic word. The word Eucharist is a Greek word that means thanks. So I once, when I was in my bookstore years, I had someone bring a Bible back after buying it because in the back of the book in the dictionary section it had the word Eucharist and she goes, I will not have a Catholic Bible in my house. Well, you do know that's a Greek word. That means Thanksgiving. She goes, nope, it's a, that's, that's what the Catholics call it. It's a Eucharist. Fine, we'll give you another Bible, you know. Just, anyway, just don't worry about that word. It has no extra meaning. <clears throat> so you have transubstantiation. Well, Martin Luther came along. Now, he didn't use this word, but what he described was given the phrase of consubstantiation. So you have trans, meaning change. You have con, meaning with. With substance. And let me write it, read it. It is both the actual bread and wine and the actual body and blood. So it's both and. Luther tried to come up with an analogy, which I think is a really weak one. I actually came up with a better one. Luther described it as putting an iron into a fire. And then when you take it out, both the iron and the fire are one, but they're still separate. Problem is, they're not really, because it's the iron that's been changed a little bit, but it's, anyway. So you can kind of see how it would work. I think it would be more appropriate to use the idea of sponge and water. You can put the two together, you can still separate them, but they still have their own identity. But when you see it, you just see the sponge. You don't know if it's full of water or not, unless it's dripping. Then you have the Anabaptist view, put forth by Zwingli, 
he responded to both of these and said, no, it's merely a memorial service. It's a remembrance, and that's it. Nothing special happens to the elements. Okay, then you have the fourth view, and that's considered the reformed view, or which was started with John Calvin. <clears throat> this is more of a spiritual presence view. It's a little hard to explain. It's more theological, <clears throat> philosophical, symbolic. Uh, these items are indeed symbolic signs, but they're not empty signs. They're not merely a memorial that the presence of Christ is really present with us during that meal in the verse 16 and verse 18 in the participation of the event. And Calvin cites these verses, which is why I bring it up. He is saying something real is happening here. Now, many years ago, I was on the board of uh, the extension program for Fuller Theological Seminary, and one of the benefits that we had would be we could take any class um, and just just take it. We didn't have to take the test, we could just listen to the lectures. And so Lisa and I went to uh, listen to Dr. James Torrance from the University of Edinburgh. And he did an entire semester on the theology of worship. It was extraordinary, just amazing. But he had one week where his entire lecture was based on this reform perspective of the Lord's Supper. And I'd never heard anything like it articulated quite so well. And it, it really was quite amazing um, what he was describing, this idea of Christ's presence. And of course, I grew up in the Baptist tradition where it's, you know, it's just something you do. And you kind of get into the, the rhythm of it, the rote of it. And that next week, we had communion at the church we were going to at the time. And Lisa and I were really looking forward to it. I mean, just this idea of a new understanding, a new perception of what is going on. Unfortunately, that particular week, uh, they decided that the special music was some rock band, literally, with a fella kind of crooning and crowing at the stage during the elements being passed, and we're just going, the cacophony of it. There was nothing sacred about the moment at all. There wasn't even a period of silence, nothing. It was just noise. And in my everlasting admiration, Lisa walked out. And we were sitting on the second row in the front. And she had her elements with her and had communion in the silence of the courtyard. The pastor noticed and he asked what was going on and we told him, you, there's something special here in this event. Now I'm not saying I follow the reform view or the Zwingli view or any of this, I'm just saying we take this, this supper for granted, don't we? We don't really even think about it. One writer put, he said, there are images of broken bodies throughout scripture. God took Adam and 
broke him to create two so that the two could become one. That's the body broken. You can take that bread and break it into hundreds of pieces. And yet when they are partaken, we become one. So that we can replicate ourselves and become two, so that the two then can become one. So that the one can become two, and the two can become one. This action is evangelism. It's the spread of the kingdom of God. That when we go out and bring someone else in, they become one with us. What an extraordinary thought. And you think of the word communion. Without union, there is no communion. <coughs> it's another word we blithely just flip out there. Oh, we're having communion. Really? Oh, okay, cool. Was the bread any good? You know, what we have in our church is pie crust. It's amazing. I mean, I mean there's, there's very, I mean, they, whatever, whoever does that and has been doing it for years, it's a gift to this church. It's an individual who makes it for us. Because when I was in the bookstore business, we sold the communion wafers and the, the little squares or the actual Catholic wafers. And I once broke open one of the boxes and went, yeah, I mean, it was horrible. How can anybody eat this? You know, it's not supposed to be filling. It's not supposed to be tasty. It is an act of service and sacrament. And we don't even think about it. We don't give it another thought after it's over. We don't think about it until it happens. And when it's over, we don't think about it again. Isn't that a tragedy? And here you have Paul coming to say, okay, when we come together, aren't we participating in the blood of Christ? Fellowshipping with Him? Isn't the bread that we break, isn't that fellowship with the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we are a many body, for we all remember the one bread. Oh wait, it doesn't say that. It says we partake. We eat. We drink. We bring it into ourselves as an expression of our unity with Christ. So why is this so important? Well, Paul makes the point about idol worship and idol sacrifice because he's coming back around full circle where he started in chapter 8 about meat sacrificed to idols. He comes all this other stuff and he comes back to the, the supper that we have together as the body of Christ and he says, and so when you were pagan, and you ate of the sacrificial meat. You were participating 
with that idol. Whoa. Wait a second. It's not just simply a the communion with God and the Lord's Supper is this. He's saying no. When you are participating as a pagan, you are participating with demons. And now you say, but I'm participating with Christ and I have the freedom to do the other stuff too. He goes, you can't do both. This is why I think, and I come back to this later with a little more in depth, but why there's that warning. If you take this cup and are not in the body of Christ, you are taking on condemnation. Because that has always bothered me a little bit. It's like, so why the big deal? It's just some grape juice and some bad food. I mean, what's the big deal? And Jesus is, and Paul is saying about the scriptures and of what Jesus was saying in that is you are participating in me, not participating in demons. What pagans sacrifice, verse 20, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to koinonia with demons. I guess I could say, like Paul did, my beloved. I'll just say, my friends. Koinonia is everywhere. We participate in this world. Demons are everywhere. Everywhere. Back in Paul's day, For the Greek, every spring, every grove, every mountain, every tree, every stream, every pool, every rock, and every place had its demon. There were gods in the fountain, in every mountain summit, gods breathing in the wind, flashing in the lightning, gods in the ray of the sun and the star, gods heaving in the earthquake and the storm. The world was packed with demons, and for the Jew, they even had the Shadim. And these were the evil spirits that haunted empty houses and lurked in the crumbs on the floor, in the oil of the vessels and the water you drink, in the disease that that attack, and in the air and in the room and by day and by night. When Paul says in Ephesians, we are dealing with principalities and powers, and we tend to go, yeah, good for you, Paul. I believe you. And then we walk away from it, just like we walk away from this participation concept. This is what Paul is trying to contrast. He is trying to say that you cannot do both. So Doug Wilson has this nice little commentary in 1 Corinthians, and he writes, So whatever is happening when a man sacrificed Aphrodite and slept with one of her priestesses, it was not anything like consubstantiation, transubstantiation, or memorialism. Nothing was happening to internal essences while leaving the external intact. Neither was it a mere sign pointing to something else happening someplace else entirely. It was a fellowship with devils. And whatever happened when a man brought a peace offering in ancient Israel, it was not the meat of the sacrifice turning into another substance. Nevertheless, 
that man was truly becoming a partaker of the altar. This kind of covenantal participation does not require a priest or special magic words. Ours is a covenantal participation at one of two possible tables, the table of Christ or the table of demons. And we do so by virtue of simply being alive in this world. The only question is where we are partaking by faith, either this table or that table. It's not a question of whether we are partaking. We are partaking every day, in every way, in everything we do. We are in this world, but not of it, as they say in Scripture. That's tough. It's hard. We are assaulted by evil every single day. And we pray, give us this day our daily bread. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. That is a powerful message. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Exodus 34.14 says, You shall worship no other God, for Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. And please, let's not add any of the human, human thoughts and ideas or definitions of jealousy. It's, God says, why do you think the first uh, parts of the Ten Commandments are all about idolatry? No other gods before me. Just don't do it. And we tend to break that commandment at every opportunity. When I said we're confronted by it everywhere we turn, this is in today's, this morning's newspaper. It's a special insert from the Arizona Republic called Holiday Feel Your Best Guide. Ah, it's so wonderful. You want to open it up and go, ooh, I want to feel my best. Okay, eight things to say no to this holiday season. Okay, so, oh, how to stay healthy. A whole section on wellness. Ooh, that's good. Another section on wellness on how to combat fatigue and fullness. And how to impress your guests with what you bring to the table. Oh, and this entire smorgasbord of food and even a recipe. Isn't this cool? And even cocktails. Ooh, mm, let's go for it. And then sustainable beauty gifts. I need that. Christmas trees, how to travel sustainably, and how to wrap it up. And then the final page is the most important page because this is what they're leaving you with, is astrology. Demons are everywhere. For someone who is not in Christ, for someone who is unsure of their faith for someone who is not grounded in scripture they will read this as a 
move from one to the next, to the next, to the next, and the denouement is demons. This morning's paper. You don't think we're surrounded by demons? Absolutely we are. They're everywhere. And my encouragement to each one of you, to myself, is says during this season, come back to these verses and think that God is saying, I am participating with you in everything you do and in everything you say and how you interact with your friends, your co-workers, your family. Boy, what a challenge, isn't it? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. Such deep thoughts in such a simple thing. And yet, that's the beauty of Scripture. As we open it up, there's another layer, and another layer, and another layer, an infinite layer of meaning. And we can come back to it multiple times because we forget. Lord, help us to remember. Help us to participate in you, in the blood of Christ, in the body of Christ, as one people, under your guidance and for your glory. In Jesus' name.